Good evening. I am Professor Lloyd Ambrosius. Uh, it is my privilege as uh, chair of the uh, Thompson Forum Program Committee uh, to welcome you uh, to the E.N. Thompson Forum on World Issues. Uh, founded by E.N. Jack Thompson and later named in his honor, uh, the forum is designed to engage both uh, the University of Nebraska community and the general public uh, in important issues that affect all of us in the contemporary world. We are grateful to the Thompson family and the Cooper Foundation for their generous support for this lecture series. We also thank the LEAD Center, uh, Nebraska Educational Telecommunications, uh, Cable TV Channel 21, uh, KRNU Radio, and the University Bookstore for their support. This evening's lecture, Who Stole the American Dream, is by Hedrick Smith. As a reporter, he spent 26 years at the New York Times, including several years as Moscow uh, bureau chief and elsewhere abroad. He won two Pulitzer Prizes, one for his role on the team of journalists who published the Pentagon Papers, and the other for his international uh, reporting from Russia and Eastern Europe. His books include The Russians and The Power Game, How Washington Works. Uh, since 1989, Mr. Smith has created more than two dozen uh, primetime television specials for PBS, for which he has won numerous awards. His latest book, and the title of his lecture this evening is uh, Who Stole the American Dream? After the lecture, uh, you will have the opportunity to ask questions of tonight's speaker by writing them on cards uh, provided by the ushers. Now join me in welcoming Hedrick Smith back to Nebraska. Thank you very much, ladies and gentlemen, and thank you, Dr. Ambrosius. It's a pleasure to be back in, in uh, Lincoln. Uh, I was here, I think, 15 years ago giving a similar lecture, and my reporting from PBS on a program called Can You Afford to Retire brought me here <clears throat> six or seven years ago to actually look at the Nebraska retirement system and include it in the program. So I've been here both as a speaker and as a reporter. I appreciate your coming out tonight, and I take it as a sign that you, like me, and like many other Americans, are very concerned about the state of affairs in our country, our cherished country. Um, it's a deeply troubling time, <clears throat> excuse me, not just because of the 16-day shutdown of the government in Washington, but because of many other things that leave us feeling uneasy about the country. Uh, I just saw a poll on my way out here uh, earlier this week that said that only 18% of the people think the country is on the right track. That 63% of the public in America now thinks America is in decline. Probably one of the highest percentages I've seen in all the time I've spent reporting. <clears throat> that the faith in the American political system is at one of the low points, one of the two lowest points in the last 40 years. Now, I wish I could be sort of lighthearted about this and say that this all reminds me of one of my favorite cartoons is the one in Charlie Brown, where Lucy has put up a card table in the backyard, and it says, psychiatry, one cent. Well, you know who walks up. Charlie Brown, of course. 
He puts his penny down, and then Lucy says to him, Charlie, before I can give you any mental advice and analysis, she said, I need you to think of life as a voyage on a great ocean liner. Now, there's one group of people, and they take their deck chairs up into the bow, and they look into the future to see where they're headed. And there's another group, and they take their deck chair to the stern to look back to see where they've come from. Which group do you belong to? And Charlie thought a moment, scratched his head, sort of pawed the dirt with his toe, and he said, Lucy, I'm having trouble getting my chair unfolded. <laughs> That's one way of looking at it. Certainly, Washington is having trouble getting its chair unfolded. But the more sober way of looking at it um, is not just to cite the numbers, but I was struck by a comment made by John Gardner before he died several years ago. This Back in the early 2000s, 2004, I think he made this comment. And it seemed pertinent to me, so I want to share it with you. It's an elegant comment. We're treading the edge of a precipice here. Civilizations die of disenchantment. If enough people doubt their society, the whole venture falls apart. We must never let anger, fashionable cynicism, or political partisanship blur our vision on that point. We must not despair of our republic. I, I suppose one reason we're despairing and we're disturbed and uneasy is that we see now that at a minimum we're two Americas. We're divided by power, we're divided by money. There's a disconnect between Washington and the country. <clears throat> There's a disconnect between the enormous profits of America's mighty multinational companies and the stagnant living standards of people in the middle and the slow rise in family income and the persistent unemployment and underemployment that we have in the country. As I got thinking about this and working on this book, I was taken back to my years at Oxford as a student after I finished college and that great British historian Arnold Toynbee. Toynbee, Toynbee writes about the, the, the history of 21 civilizations in the world over 6,000 years. And he talks about their rise and fall in terms of the process of challenge and response. He speaks about ancient Egypt and ancient Inca Peru uh, as having the challenge of a hostile environment, how difficult it was for those societies to build an agricultural economy that would support large numbers of people and then leave behind such monuments as the pyramids and the, the temples of Machu Picchu in, in Latin America. So that was, that was one kind of challenge. But those two civilizations fell victim to another kind of challenge, and that is a military challenge from outside. The Ottoman Turks conquered the Egyptians, and the Spaniards conquered uh, the Peruvian Incans. And so they fell victim to that, and that was the end of their civilizations. They went into decline. And, but what's interesting is that's the kind of challenge we're used to in America. We're used to the challenge of an external military challenge. We faced Hitler during World War II and the Axis powers, and then, of course, in the long Cold War period, we faced Soviet communism and, and the challenge of the Soviet ideology as well as its military power. And we faced that down. We were successful. We overcame that. But Toynbee then starts writing about something that's really intriguing and seems to me very relevant to us today. He talks about the challenges faced by two civilizations that we admire greatly, ancient Greece and ancient Rome. And the challenges that finally did them in and undid those societies were challenges from within. Toynbee calls them schisms in the soul of the society, schisms in the body social. We would say in America, schisms in the body politic, internal divisions. 
the kind of divisions that we see today played out in Washington, played out in the economy, played out in the arguments we have among ourselves, played out in the friction, the sense of friction and insecurity that we have in our society. We also got the warning of the same kind of thing from Abraham Lincoln. Remember, it was Lincoln who warned us, a house divided cannot stand. So here we are in a house that feels very divided, not just at the moment, not just because of the shutdown, but because of tensions within our society that have been building for quite a while. Now, what troubled me as a reporter when I sat down to start working on this book was how did we get here? How did we get here? I began with a bunch of questions. I didn't begin with the title, Who Stole the American Dream? I actually began with the title, The Dream at Risk, because it didn't take much genius in 2009 when I began the work to see that with 500,000 jobs being lost every month, people being foreclosed out of their homes, Wall Street having collapsed, and the country maybe headed for another depression, the dream was certainly at risk. But how did it happen? And was I misremembering how things had been before? How did we move from a place that I remembered that was, there was more widely shared prosperity, there was a functioning political system? How do we move from there to here? So what I want to share with you tonight is very much a reporter's story, a story of my discoveries along the route to writing this book, my discoveries about America, and the way I've put the narrative together in a way that at least makes sense to me and I hope will help make sense to you. And the book is full of, and the, and the story is full of ordinary people, Pat O'Neill, the Jet Airlines mechanic, small business people, Christine Serrano, a computer uh, programmer, uh, all kinds of people. And I mentioned the Nebraska retirement system. That's in there too. It's actually in the book as well, talking to Anna Sullivan at the, at the Nebraska retirement system. And I began to find things that totally astonished me. The first thing I found, I started with the housing crisis because it was the housing crisis that kind of got us into trouble. Uh, and so I thought I'd better understand that. I'd never done a documentary about housing, so I thought I'd better understand that. And what I found was, very quickly, the main victims of subprime loans in America were not subprime borrowers, were not poor people who couldn't afford and shouldn't afford, shouldn't have even gotten into the houses and the loans in the first place. They were prime borrowers. More than half of the people who got hit by high loans with high fees and high interest rates were people who didn't belong in those loans to begin with. They'd been talked into them, cajoled into them, sort of tricked into them, bamboozled into them. That was a surprise. And then the next surprise I found was American homeowners lost $6 trillion of the accumulated value of their homes as the housing bubble was going up, not when it came down. It's astonishing to me. In the late 1980s, Americans owned 70% of the value of their homes. And by 2009, they owned 30%. So many had refinanced their homes. So many had taken out a second mortgage. So many had bought homes with 100% loans that their share of the ownership had declined. And instead of owning 70% of the homes, they owned 30%. Instead of the banks owning 30% of the loans, the banks suddenly owned, they owned 60%. 20, $20 trillion is the value of the housing in America. 30% shifted from people to banks. $6 trillion. Astonishing. An enormous shift of wealth. I thought, there's something going on here that is bigger than something just happening. This didn't just happen. It's being done to people. And then I got into the 401k program and the retirement system. And what I realized was the 401k represented an enormous shift of economic burden 
from the corporate books to the pocketbooks and the checkbooks of ordinary people. Hundreds of billions of dollars a year were being shelled out by ordinary people. And they used to be paid for by the corporations. Another burden, loss of housing wealth, then the loss of retirement wealth. I began to think there's a bigger pattern here. And then I got listening to the debate that was going on. A way to get the economy going again, I was hearing again and again, is to lower the tax rates. Lower the tax rates and the economy will go again. So I went back into the history books and I started to take a look. I'd forgotten this, but under Dwight Eisenhower in the 1950s, the maximum marginal tax rate, the tax rate on the wealthiest people in the country, was 92%. 92%. It fell to 77% under John F. Kennedy. And yet during that period, even though we had ups and downs in the economy, even though we had poverty, that was a period when we had growth rates of 3 or 4% a year on average. Strong growth, high tax rates. Something didn't fit. And then come forward to the 2000 decade. The maximum marginal tax rate under Barack Obama and George W. Bush was 35%. But we had the worst growth rates in seven decades. So it dawned on me, there's no connection between the marginal tax rate at the top brackets of the American income tax system and growth. That's not the way to get growth again. That isn't what the secret of growth has been. So then I thought, I better go back and find out. Because I remembered, I remembered coming out of college and spending my first decade or more in the work world and seeing a much greater sharing of prosperity in the country, a much a stronger sense of economic security by average people. And then I thought, Smith, you're getting white-haired. People who get white-haired sort of remember it was really great in the old days. You know, they, you know that's why everything was, it was like Wobegon, right? Everything was above average in the old days. Right? Uh, and uh, so I, Smith, you better go back and check. And I had, I had this one very vivid memory. I don't know if you have it, enough of you were around. I remember that in 1959, <coughs> excuse me, I remember in 1959, Richard Nixon went to Moscow and that famous kitchen debate with Nikita Khrushchev, the Soviet communist leader. And there were, the reason they call it the kitchen debate is the Americans had a display of, of kitchen appliances. We had stoves and refrigerators and my, well, they didn't have microwaves, they had various different kinds of toasters and washing machines and dryers. And, and Nixon was bragging about what a wonderful standard of living. Americans owned their own homes and so forth. Khrushchev is getting more and more angry and more and more frustrated. And he butts in and he says, all right, all right, all right, Mr. Vice President, but understand, here in the Soviet Union, we're building a classless society, you know, the old Soviet idea. And Nixon, without skipping a beat, put his finger in, in Khrushchev's eye, and he said, we already have a classless society in America. Now, Nixon was wrong. He was exaggerating. Charlie Wilson, the head, the head of uh, General Motors in those days, he made about 40 times as much as the average worker. So we had inequality of income. But what Nixon was getting at was something that was very important there was what economists call the great convergence. The difference between the incomes at the top and the middle and the bottom were not that great. There was a convergence between them. And economists have also gone back and taken a look at that period. And if you look at the time between the end of World War II and the middle 1970s, 30 years, the productivity of the American workforce roughly doubled. Phenomenal achievement, roughly doubled went up 97%. And the income, the standard of living of the middle American family, the median, the average American family, went up 95%. In other words, almost dollar for dollar, the gains of the economy, the profits of the big companies, 
and the efficiency of the American workforce were being translated into higher living standards for everybody, not just the people at the top, but for everybody. Economists like to divide the country up and the, econ and the people up into quintiles, the top 20%, second 20%, so on down to the bottom 20%. And if you look at that period from 1945 through the late 70s, all five quintiles moved up. It's, it's almost like a, a wave going upward. Every single one of them moved up, and they moved up almost in, in tandem with each other. In fact, the bottom two quintiles actually gained more in income than the middle, and the ones at the top actually gained less. So there was a slight narrowing. That's what, that's what I remembered without knowing those numbers. It was a sense that everybody was participating in the gains of the American economy, and the gains were being widely shared. So when I went back and looked at it, I thought, well, white hair or not, you're right about that. So then I thought, why? Why was that going on then, and why isn't it going on now? What was going on then that isn't happening now? How do we explain it? Well, one of the most interesting things that I found out, and I must say as a young person, I hadn't focused on this, but what's really interesting is we had business leaders in the 1940s, 50s, 60s, and 70s, and we still have some today. But the preponderance of business leaders at that time, people like Charlie Wilson, who was head of General Motors, Reg Jones, who was head of General Electric, Frank Abrams, who was head of Standard Oil of New Jersey, they believed it was the job of the CEO to balance the economic interests of all the stakeholders in the corporation. Stakeholders, a very important word. Economists use the term stakeholder capitalism. What they meant by that was <clears throat> all the groups that had a stake in the success of the corporation. Well, obviously, that includes the stockholders, includes the owners, but it also includes the managers. It includes the rank-and-file employees. It includes the suppliers. It includes the creditors. The banks that loan money to a, a company don't want to see it go out of business, and neither the, the parts suppliers for General Motors. They've got a stake in the survival of its success. And the customers. You don't want to buy a car or a cell phone or a refrigerator and have the company go out of business and not be able to service it. You want them to be able to stand behind their product. So these guys believe, and they actually use terms like this, it is our moral responsibility, it is our sacred trust, it is our job to balance these interests. So one of the reasons why the wealth was being shared is because they thought it was fair. They thought it was right. That was part of their ethic, their business ethic in running business. But the other thing they thought was it was smart economics smart economics to share the wealth. Why? Back in 1914, Henry Ford introduced the $5 day in America. Now, at that time, $5 was an unheard of sum to pay an average worker. Ford had to pay that. He was losing workers. He had to do it. But Ford had another reason. He said, if I pay them $5 a day, they're going to be able to afford to buy the Model T cars that Ford Motor Company is making. And that's exactly the same thing that Charlie Wilson and Reg Jones and Frank Abrams and those other CEOs in the 50s, 60s, and 70s said. If we pay our workers well, they're going to be able to afford the products that we're producing. And that's going to keep our businesses growing and profitable. It's a, it's a way of sharing the wealth and driving the economy. Economists call that the virtuous circle of growth. Important because every part of the process pushes the next part of the process, the virtuous circle of growth. Produce things, pay tens of millions of middle-class workers and everybody else, good salaries. Middle-class Americans don't save a lot of money. They spend it. 
95% of it, sometimes 96, sometimes 102% of it, but they spend a lot of money. And that big spending generates robust consumer demand, and that is the driver of the American economy. The real job creators in the American economy are sitting in this room tonight and watching on this television screen this evening. It is all of us, our combined purchasing power, that drives the economy. And one of the reasons why we're having such a weak recovery today is that we have weak purchasing power, and one of the reasons is we've uncoupled that famous virtuous circle of growth. We've done it by allowing enormous variations, enormous inequalities of income, and letting middle-class people and middle-class wages and salaries stagnate. There isn't enough purchasing power to drive this economy well. The guys who were running business back then, and sad to say, it was almost all men at that point, they understood that it was in their economic self-interest to pay average workers well so there would be a strong demand to drive the economy. All right, so one thing <clears throat> that was essential to the strong economy that we had at that time period was this belief on the part of the leadership in stakeholder capitalism. The other thing was the exercise of people power by the American middle class. It's very interesting to go back and look at that era. I began my reporting career in the late 50s, and one of the most dramatic periods of my life was 1960, February, Nashville, Tennessee, which was the beginning of the, the sit-ins and the modern civil rights movement really exploding around the South. Civil rights movement, <clears throat> excuse me, was one of the prime examples of people power affecting American policy and actually widening the circle, widening the possibilities of American democracy in the political realm. But there wasn't just that. There was a woman's movement. Betty Friedan wrote The Feminine Mystique 50 years ago this year. Women protested. They were making 41 cents on the dollar for doing the same work that men were doing. And they thought it was unfair, and they began to protest against that. So it was an activist women's movement. Not maybe having as many visible marches, but nonetheless, as the civil rights movement, but nonetheless, they were very active. And there was a consumer's movement. Ralph Nader wrote that famous book, Unsafe at Any Speed, in the early 1960s, saying that General Motors and Ford and the American auto companies were making cars with mechanical defects, brakes that didn't work, steering columns that didn't work right, wheels that came off, tires that exploded. They were, they were causing accidents through mechanical defects, and Detroit had to clean up its act, and that would require more governmental regulation or oversight, something to make sure that products were safe. And that spread into all kinds of things, uh, pharmaceuticals, food, and you began to see a much greater emphasis by the uh, Food and Drug Administration or the Agricultural Department to inspect products. And then you began to see the insistence on product labeling, Go into a grocery store or a pharmacy today, turn the product over on the back, look at the label to see whether or not you want to buy it. Is it safe? Is it healthy? Does your doctor recommend it or tell you you shouldn't be doing it? You can thank those people back there in the 60s and 70s who were out protesting and sometimes marching on the mall, sometimes going to, to, to Congress uh, in Washington, sometimes meeting with their representatives at home, demanding better protection of consumers. There was a strong labor movement that negotiated with major corporations uh, for stronger wages, for health benefits, for retirement benefits. In fact, in 1980, 84% of the people who worked for companies with more than 100 employees had lifetime pensions. 
They had a check from their employer from the day they retired to the day they died from their employer. Today, that number is down to 30%. 70% had fully paid employer health benefits. Today, that number is down to 18%. So there was a strong movement that was, that was pushing to see that the middle class got some kind of economic security. When you began to put it together, I began to see that there was this <clears throat> strong push that was influencing decisions in the private sector and influencing public policy that was underpinning the good living standard of middle-class Americans and spreading wealth across the country. There was an environmental movement. Think of it. Earth Day 1970, April 22nd, 20 million Americans went into the streets. They met on college campuses like this one. They went into shopping malls. They marched in the streets. Uh, I've got video pictures of them. I did a documentary on, on environmental issues, the Clean Air and Clean Water, Clean, uh, Water Act uh, a couple of, several years ago. And the demonstrations just blew my mind. I couldn't remember that there had been that many people involved. And within a year, Congress had passed seven major pieces of environmental legislation. The Clean Air Act, the Clean Water Act, the Safe Drinking Water Act, the Anti-Toxic Substance Act, on and on and on. All of them signed by that great environmentalist, the Republican President, Richard Nixon. Now, I, yeah, uh, you got it. Um, I, I happen to know, but, but think about it, think about it. I talked to Bill Ruckelshaus, who was the first head of the Environmental Protection Agency appointed by, uh, by Nixon. I did an interview with him for my documentary on, on the Clean Water Act. I said, Bill, tell me about it. Why did Nixon sign that stuff, uh, that legislation? Did he believe in protecting the environment? He said, Rick, Nixon, in all the years I worked for him, never once asked me, Bill, is it really bad out there? Is it true that the Cuyahoga River is literally bursting into flames because there's so many chemicals in the river? Or that if you put your arm into the Potomac River at Washington, D.C., it will come out covered with green slime because there's so much algae because of the nitrogen and phosphorus uh, pollution? He said, no. He said, the one thing he did say to me was, he said, Bill, when you get over there, he said, don't get captured by those bureaucrats at EPA. EPA. <laughs> Ruckelshaus said to me, Nixon was the only person in Washington who thought the nickname for the EPA was EPA. He said, he said, that's how seriously he believed in the environment. And I said, so, so, so why did he sign all the legislation? He said, the people demanded it. We had to respond. That's how democracy is supposed to work. Wow, what a statement when you think about that today. And that's the point. In that era, you had pressure from the middle class, from women, from consumers, from the labor movement, from the civil rights movement, from the peace movement on the Vietnam War, from the environmental movement, pushing policy in Washington to respond to the demands of average Americans, to make this place fairer, cleaner, safer for everybody. So what happened? What's interesting is what happened in both the political sphere and in the economic sphere. In the political sphere, there was a power shift that began in the late 1970s, believe it or not, under the Democrats, before Reagan got into office. It was continued by Reagan. To my surprise, it actually started under the Democrats. There was a power shift in the way Washington works, and I'm going to talk to you about it in a minute. And there was a change in that economic philosophy from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. Now, let me, let me share with you first the political story. <clears throat> 
there was a reaction. There was a revolt of the bosses against the very forces that I've just described to you. There was frustration building uh, in the C-suite, as they call it nowadays in America, the CEO's seat, the, the top executive suite in many big corporations. They were resenting the power of the women's movement, the consumer movement, the environmental movement, the labor movement, and so forth. And they wanted to fight back, but they, it was in co-ed. And then a fellow named Lewis Powell, whose name may be familiar to you, uh, because he was named to the Supreme Court in 1972 by Richard Nixon. Rather soft-spoken southerner with a tidewater drawl, drawl from uh, Richmond, but an ardent believer in the free enterprise system, a strong supporter of corporations, a, a rather virulent enemy of, of labor unions, uh, and a guy with access to people all over the country, and particularly to people in power at the U.S. Chamber of Commerce. He was complaining in 1971 about how business was being hurt in the political arena to some of his friends in the Chamber of Commerce. And they said, well, you're a lawyer. Why don't you write a brief? Write us a memo. Write something up. Well, that's what he did. Powell sat down and wrote what historians now call the Lewis Powell Memorandum of August 1971. And in it, he basically, he was a Paul Revere. It was a call to arms to business. And he said simply, you're doing a great job in the economy, but you're getting killed in the political arena. You have got to get into the fight. You've got to go out and organize. You've got to pool your resources financially. You've got to have a long-term plan. You need to identify your enemies, go out after them, punish them politically, take the high ground, get into Washington, and fight. Now, what's astonishing is that's exactly what happened. I didn't realize it. I was my, at Washington bureau chief of the New York Times in the late 70s. And I actually saw some of this unfolding, but I didn't know what was causing it. It's like seeing the waves on the water and seeing the wind, but you really don't understand what's going on in nature. Well, something big was going on. When Powell wrote his memo, there was no such thing as the business roundtable. The business roundtable is the organization of probably the 180 largest, most powerful corporations in America, GM, GE, IBM, DuPont, Procter & Gamble, you name them, across the board, Microsoft, uh, and on and on. It didn't exist. Within four months of Powell's memo, they had formed that. Irving Shapiro at, uh, uh, at, at DuPont and Reg Jones at General Electric and, and a number of others. And they began to lobby Washington in the late 70s and onward. Literally, the CEOs would go down, and they don't go down to talk to your average congressman or congresswoman. They go talk to the president, the vice president. They stay in the Lincoln bedroom. Uh, you've, you've seen stories about that, I'm sure. Um, you know, they talk to the Speaker of the House, they talk to the Majority Leader of the Senate, they talk to the Committee Chairman, they talk to the people who move the legislation. So that's a very powerful lobbying organization that did not exist until Powell wrote his memo. What's also interesting is when he wrote his memo, there were only 175 companies that even had offices in Washington. Eight years later, there were 2,425. There were 50,000 people by 1980 working for business trade associations in Washington. There were 9,000 registered corporate lobbyists. There were 8,000 corporate PR people. It was an army. I call it Powell's Army. And they went to work. What's interesting is what I just said. The most pivotal Congress of the last 50 years was not 1981 when Reagan came in. The tide had already turned. It turned in 1978 with the Democrats in charge of both houses of Congress and with Jimmy Carter in the White House. Here's what happened. Powell's army went to work. 
the consumer movement under Ralph Nader thought with the Democrats in charge of everything, they were finally going to get a Consumer Protection Bureau, which they'd long wanted and had not been able to get when Nixon and Jerry Ford, the Republicans, were in the White House. The bill never got out of the House of Representatives. Powell's army went to work and snuffed it out. The labor movement thought it was going to get some important labor legislation that would make it easier for labor to organize in various states. Roll back Landrum Griffith, roll back Taft-Hartley, legislation that controlled uh, what labor could do. That got out of the House, but it never got out of the Senate. And then the business community and the Powell's army went to work positively to go after what they could get. The 401k program was written into law in 1978. Now understand, almost nobody knew what the 401k program was. Can you imagine anybody purposely naming a program 401k? I mean, it, it is in the tax code, it's, it's paragraph 401, and then subparagraph K. It was, it was designed to be buried, and it was also never designed to be a national retirement program. It was a tax shelter for profit-sharing bonuses paid by Xerox and Kodak and a few New York banks to their executives, and under IRS rules, they had to include average employees. It was a very small potatoes operation. Only later on did it expand, but it was revolutionary in what it did. That same Congress passed a change in the corporate bankruptcy laws, which gave corporate management more power in the process of bankruptcy. Now, when we looked at that back at that time, we had no understanding of what it would mean. But when the bankruptcy started to roll through the steel industry in the 1990s and the airline industry in the 2000s and lots of other companies as well, you began to see company after company going into bankruptcy to do what they call restructuring. And basically what restructuring meant to a great degree was writing off some of their debt, but basically rewriting the contracts that they had made with the labor unions. And rank and file workers gave up all kinds of pay and health benefits and retirement benefits. I follow the United bankruptcy in my book, the employees of United lost about $4 billion in the United bankruptcy. And some of them are still suffering from that since today with much lower retirement pay than they had expected after long years of work. So that was changed. Wall Street said, we can't loan to people who are bad risk because there are state usury laws that put a limit on the interest rate we can charge. So we need to blow the lid off interest rates. So they got Congress that year to pass a bill that superseded all the state usury laws and took the lid off interest rates. Guess what? That was an absolutely central, essential foundation for the subprime crisis uh, of, the, of the late 90s and the 2000s that we lived through. Without blowing off the lid on interest rates, that crisis would not have occurred. So that began then. Jimmy Carter wanted to, to raise the corporate tax rate a little bit to help balance the budget. When Powell's army got done with it, the corporate tax rate was lowered a bit. Um, and then the capital gains tax, which all investors pay when they cash in their stock, got dropped from 48% to 28%. Biggest change in the, in the capital gains rate in the last 50 years, and it occurred under Carter and the Democrats. Now, everybody who invests benefits from that, but you need to know that more than 50%, a little bit more than 50% of all the capital gains in America are achieved by the top 1%. So once again, it benefited people at the top. That, that Congress of 1978 followed by 79 and 80 before Reagan got into office was a turning point. It was a game changer. It changed the direction of American politics and, and American policy, and it's been with us ever since. The situation has gone on. 
the tax rates, I've already told you, came down from 92% under Eisenhower, 77% under Kennedy, 35% under Reagan, down to 28, it's bounced around. Estate tax came down very sharply. Um, the payroll tax, which everybody pays, even, even minimum wage workers pay the payroll tax, it doubled from 3.5% to a little bit over 7.5%. The minimum wage, which benefits people at the bottom of the economy, has not kept up with inflation or with average pages, uh, wages. <clears throat> so the policy changes that began there in the late 70s accelerated in the 80s because of this power shift have contributed greatly to the enormous inequality of income that we have today. So that's number one what changed, the power shift and the direction of American policy. Now the second thing that happened and that changed was there was a change in the philosophy of American business leaders. They went from stakeholder capitalism to shareholder capitalism. They went from believing that everybody should share in the wealth and that it was their job to make sure that happened to believing that their job was to maximize return to shareholders. Um, it was Milton Friedman, the famous Chicago, University of Chicago economist who first articulated that in a book in 1960. It didn't take off until the 1980s, but that became eventually that became eventually the byword of business leaders. Now, what it began to mean was that there was a wedge driven between the gains of the economy and the profits of the big corporations and the living standards of average Americans. Remember I told you that from the end of World War II until the mid-70s, productivity went up 97% and median household income went up 95%. In the next 30 years or so, from 1978 to 2011, productivity went up 80%. Not quite as much, but still a lot. But median household income went up only 10%. 80%, 10%. difference, okay? And the main reason it went up 10% is more women were, were working more hours. Census Bureau told us last year that if you took the average male, the typical male, right in the middle of the American economy, or that belt of males right in the middle of the American economy, and you compared their hourly compensation, that's wages and benefits, in 2011 to 1978, it was exactly the same, adjusted for inflation. Three decades of getting nowhere, okay? Now remember, if you say, well, they kept up with inflation, that means they kept up with the cost of food and clothing and gasoline, but they didn't keep up with the cost of college education, which skyrocketed. They didn't keep up with the cost of medical care, which skyrocketed, and they didn't keep up with the cost of housing, which skyrocketed. And they had the added burden over this 30-year period of now paying for their retirement. So if you wonder why the middle class is under stress today, you have to understand that if you go back 30 years, they were making the same money, but they weren't paying for their retirement, and it didn't cost as much on those big ticket items, healthcare, housing, and college education for your kids. So if we go back and think of the American dream in that heyday of the middle class, it was a steady job, a sense of economic security because you had health care, retirement benefits, enough pay to be able to put down a, a, a down payment on your home and then make the monthly payments for the rest of the 30 years that you were paying off your loan. So when you retired, you owned your own home and then the dream that your kids would be better off than you would be in the next generation. That's the dream that I believe has been stolen, and it's been taken away by some of these policy decisions and by this rise of wedge economics. I've told you that the average male made the same adjusted for inflation at the end of this period as at the beginning. During that same period, 
the average Fortune 500 CEO pay rose 350 to 400%. The average income of people at the top 1% rose 600%. So here you are at the middle, and you're even. You're a bit up, you're a bit up. You're further up, you're doing better. You're way up, you're doing really better. And if you're at the top, you're going through the roof. From 1979, listen to this number. It's an unbelievable number. From 1979 until 2011, 84% of the nation's entire gains of national income, the income of the entire country, from 1979 to 2011, 84% of it went to the top 1% of the population. Not just Paul Krugman and a bunch of Keynesian economists and liberals say this, but Citigroup, conservative investment bank on Wall Street, put out a study in 2005 to its wealthiest investment clients, advising them to invest basically in companies that catered to and produced products for and built homes for and gated communities for the wealthiest people in the country. Citigroup said, that the world had not seen in any major power the, such great inequality of income as there was in America today since 16th century Spain. So we're talking about 500 years. That's Citigroup's estimate. Now, you can say, well, maybe they deserve it. Certainly that isn't something that most Americans are comfortable with. Americans are comfortable with the idea of economic inequality. During that period that I mentioned when there was shared prosperity, I said Charlie Wilson made 40 times what the average worker in his factories made. Now it's close to 400. It's 380 times for the, for the Fortune 500 CEOs. So it's, it's gone out of whack. But it's not only a question of fairness here. This isn't smart economics for the country. This isn't smart economics for the country because there are all kinds of studies that show that high inequality of income in a country, whether it's America or another country, means slow economic growth. Let me repeat, high inequality of income means slow economic growth. I've read studies that say it is destructive to economic growth. And the reason is the virtuous circle of growth that I told you about before. Pay lots of people reasonably well. They go out and shop, that drives the economy. Companies produce more products, have to buy more equipment, hire more people, build more plants, and that keeps the circle of growth going. What we've done with this high inequality of income in this country that's grown over the last 30 years is break that circle. And now we can't get it going again. Every single time we have a downturn, starting from 1990 until today, it takes longer for the engine to get back up the hill. Prior to 1990, it took us about 19 or 20 months on average to go from the bottom of a recession back to where we were before in terms of employment. In 1991 to 93, it took 26 months. In 2001 to 2003, it took 46 months. Ladies and gentlemen, we are now in the 55th month, and we can't see the month when we're going to have the same level of unemployment in this country that we had back in 2007. Something is structurally wrong. It isn't just the fight in Washington. It isn't just political difficulties. It is a combination of policies in Washington that are heavily tilted in favor of the financial and corporate elite and is decisions being made by most of the leaders, but not all, in American industry, 
about where they want to have their jobs and how they're going to cut up the economic pie after they've made their profits. And this is going to continue unless we do something about it. Now, the danger here is that there's a spillover effect of the economy into the, uh, the political system. It was Louis Brandeis who said, famous Supreme Court justice before he went on the court, a century ago in 1916, he said, we must make our choice. We can either have democracy or we can have wealth concentrated in the hands of a few, but we can't have both. And what we've seen in our political system is the decline of the middle. If we've seen in the economic system the decline of the middle class and the political system, we've seen the decline of the political middle. There are any number of reasons for this, but probably one of the most important, and this may not be something that's so important here in Nebraska, but it certainly is in more populous states, is gerrymandering. We have now gotten such sophisticated computer equipment and software that the leaders of the political party who are in control of the governor's seat and the legislature after each census, we reshuffle the seats every 10 years, as you know, they are able to draw the lines of the congressional districts and the state legislative lines in ways that will benefit their party to the maximum. Now, if you take a state like Michigan and you take Republican governors, they don't claim they're going to grab all the seats. They look at Detroit and they say, we're going to lose in Detroit. The Democrats are going to win there. Lower income people, more minorities, more women maybe, not where we do well, we'll concede them three or four seats. So they allow three or four safe seats in Detroit, and then they grab all the ones they can from around Detroit. Okay? And the Democrats do it too. It's not one party or the other. In Massachusetts and Connecticut, the Democrats are gerrymandering like crazy. Republicans get about a third of the vote in Massachusetts and Connecticut. There are 15 congressional seats from those two states. In the last several elections, the Republicans have gotten zero seats. Democrats get all 15. So I'm not blaming one party or the other, but both parties are playing this game disastrously for American democracy. Why do I say that? There are two basic reasons. One is that if there are all these safe seats created, then moderates, people in the middle, independents, who are not affiliated to any party and sometimes vote this way or that way, this certainly includes me. I voted for both Republicans and Democrats over my lifetime several times. And there are lots of others. There are millions of others like that. And in some states, they really swing the election. I just came from Colorado. It's about a third, a third, a third. So the independents out there are very important. But independents begin to get, and moderates begin to get discouraged. There's not much point in their voting. If there's a safe Democratic district over here and a safe Republican district over here, and you know the outcome, why bother? Well, it's your citizen's duty, we say. Yeah, but after a while, why bother? And it's the same people getting elected again and again, okay? And then what happens is the turnout goes down. And the influence of people at the extremes of both parties becomes more and more important in the party primary. We're lucky, we're lucky in America if we get a 50% turnout in congressional campaigns. In a primary, we're lucky if we get 25% of the electorate to turn out. It's usually more like 20, 21%. So a majority of that is 11%. So effectively, we've got 11% of the voters who wind up by picking the ultimate member of Congress. I'm not talking about senators for a moment, just members of the House. So a smaller and smaller minority is, is exercising power on behalf of everybody, and a lot of other people are feeling disenfranchised. Not technically, they can go vote, but it doesn't matter, and they know it. So they lose faith. Now, that's terrible for American democracy. I mean, what happened to the idea of competition? Safe districts are designed to eliminate competition. 
But I thought competition was what America was about, the market, competition, democracy, the political market, competition. But the parties have gotten together, sort of back to back, and they've played a game that's eliminating competition. We need competition in American politics in order to hold politicians accountable, in order to be able to register our own support or our disagreement with their policies. We need that in order to flush Washington in and out a lot. People are talking about term limits. That's a desperation movie. It's because competition isn't working. What we need is competition, not term limits, okay? But we need to bring the change about. When we don't bring the change about, what happens is, and listen to this number, if you talk to any good political reporter in Washington today, he will tell you that 90%, he can predict, or she can predict, 90% of the outcome of the House elections in 2014. Why? Because 90% of the districts in this country have been designed to be safe. Okay? So that competition's been eliminated. They get safer and they get more extreme and more extreme and more extreme. And then when they get to Washington, there's no middle. They can't talk to each other. There's a Grand Canyon. If you wonder why you've got the divide that created the shutdown, it isn't just the shutdown. They haven't passed a budget in three or four years. They used to pass budgets when I first went to Washington in the 1960s all the time. Pass all the appropriations bills, pass a program to go to the moon, pass Medicare, you know, pass civil rights bills, pass all kinds of legislation. They can't do anything there now. And one of the reasons is we've got a structural problem in our political system the same way we have a structural problem or two in our economic system. We need to fix that. The next thing that's happened is the power of money. Enormous amounts of money. And the amounts of money have a bigger effect in many ways on congressional races than on the presidential race. The amounts of money in the presidential race are so huge, they're up around a billion dollars for each side, that whether you have 800 million, the other side's got 1.1 billion, doesn't matter that much. You're way the heck up there. But in a congressional district, if you're raising money as hard as you can, and somebody can come in from the outside and say, we'll plunk down $2 million to back, back a candidate to run against you, then you're terrified. This preceded the Tea Party. There's now a new verb in American politics. I don't know if you know this. It's called being primaried. That is, having somebody come in and purge you. And it, the purging is going on in the Republican Party. It doesn't happen so much in the Democratic Party. But Republicans, you can see it now, the whole fight with Ted Cruz and, and, and are, there, are the establishment Republicans going to fight back? What's going to happen in the Republican primaries coming up this coming year? It's very strong. But the purging actually began in the early 2000s. And it was, it was the club for growth was behind it before the Tea Party and others. And what they did was they were going after what they called rhinos, Republicans in name only, R-I-N-O, rhinos. And one of the ones they went after first was a guy named Arlen Specter, who was the Republican senator from, uh, from Pennsylvania. They went after him in 2004. The club for growth dumped $1.8 million into the Republican primary in Pennsylvania and they nearly beat Specter, but they didn't. They wanted to purge him. They wanted to purge him, not just to purge him, but, and there are quotes uh, in the record to this effect, uh, they wanted to scare, intimidate, and discipline Olympia Snow, the moderate Republican from Maine, uh, George Voinovich, the Republican centrist uh, sort of conservative from Ohio, and a whole bunch of others. They failed, but they failed narrowly. In 2010, they went back after Specter, and they drove him out of the Republican Party. He became a Democrat. Uh, and he moved over to the other side. So you've got gerrymandering, and then you've got political purging going on, and it's pushing America to the extremes. We need to find ways to come back, bring the middle back in. Um, I don't know your state real well, but I know Chuck Hagel, 
and I remember Roman Fresca, uh, and I've heard some things about your former governor who is now a senator, and those things I've heard suggest those are all mainstream Republicans who believe strongly in free enterprise, who don't want to see a bloated government, but who can actually sit down and make compromises and get legislation passed. And we need to kind of get back to that kind of Republican, if I've got the Nebraska story straight from what other people have told me. So that's kind of where we are. We've gotten ourselves in a terrible bind. We've gotten ourselves uh, coming, uh, trying to find money. We've come out of a war that's going to cost two wars that are going to cost us, in the end, $3.5 trillion. We didn't pay a cent of taxes to pay for those wars. $3.5 trillion, one estimate, another estimate, $4.5 trillion in the end from Iraq and Afghanistan. We haven't paid a penny, and we're now talking about whether or not we should cut food stamps. And there are people saying maybe it's time for a peace dividend. And maybe they're saying, people are saying maybe we've overstretched, maybe we went too far. And you notice Obama held back, didn't go into Syria, got involved in Libya in a little way. There is a pullback uh, going on in a sense that needs to be done. But what do we do about getting back to the kind of America I was describing before? My editor said that to me when I turned in my book. She said, Rick, you've got us in a ditch. You've described the mess we've gotten into. You've got to tell us how to get out. And I said, Kate, her name is Kate Medina. I said, Kate, I'm a reporter. I don't do that stuff. That's policy wonk stuff. That's up to the president. It's up to Congress. It's up to the University of Nebraska and its experts on government. And it's up to the think tanks and so forth. And I, I said, you know, I, I call balls and strikes. I tell the record the way it is, and then people make up their minds. And she said, no, you got to do it. We went back and forth, and then my supreme editor, a woman named Susan Zox, who I happen to have been living with for the last 30 years, uh, <laughs> <laughs> said to me, Rick, Kate's right, you got to do it. So the last two chapters of my book have Hedrick Smith's handy-dandy 10-point program to save America. Now, I'm glad, I'm glad you laughed because you can tell I feel awkward about it. But the truth of the matter is, there's some obvious things for us to do. And there are even things that, that people in both political parties and on different parts of the economic spectrum agree on. We can't seem to get to them in our debate, our national debate, and certainly not in our political debate. We need to get the virtuous circle going again. We need to get the American jobs and growth machine going again. Now, I may surprise you, but I would be one who would say we ought to lower the corporate tax rate for corporations that operate in America. And we ought to close the corporate tax loopholes for corporations that move production abroad. Do you know that companies that move production abroad pay a lower tax rate than companies that operate in America? Now, is that a stupid policy or not? I mean, to me, it's just on the face of it. Why would you ever do that? That's an incentive for people to move jobs out of the country. So I say bring the rate down from 30, 35%, which is now down to 30%, and leave the companies in Nebraska and in New Hampshire and in Ohio and in California and Texas and so forth that are basically doing their work here. Let them have some more money, and maybe they will actually spend that money to, to expand the equipment or do more research or bring manufacturing back to this country. But those who are escaping and taking the jobs overseas and pushing the production overseas and paying a lower tax rate, that's crazy. We got to close those loopholes. I'm going to come back to that in a minute. So that's something that we could do. The infrastructure in this country is aching. I don't know what the roads are. I haven't spent enough time in Nebraska, but I can tell you the U.S. Chamber of Commerce says that the, the fact that our ports, our airports, 
Our railroads, our bridges, our highways are so out of date, we have lost a trillion dollars worth of growth over the last five years because of the inefficiency of our transportation system. And meanwhile, the Chinese and the Japanese and Singapore and so forth, they have bullet trains. They have, the, Chinese have, the Chinese have ports that have much more modern computerized equipment than our ports do. I've been in the port of Shenzhen near Hong Kong, and, and, and it's much more modern than Long Beach or San Francisco or Seattle. That's crazy. We can't compete that way. So we need to invest. We need to invest in our own future. Now, question, where's the money going to come from, Smith? You're going to get it from the government, another government program, government picking winners and losers and so forth. By the way, the government has been doing infrastructure in America for the last 200 years. Washington, Jefferson, and Ham Hamilton and so forth funded the building of the Erie Canal. Abraham Lincoln and the Congress in the Civil War funded the building of the transcontinental railroads across the western United States. Teddy Roosevelt funded the building of the inland waterways in America, and Dwight Eisenhower funded the building of this interstate highway system that is now creaking at 50 years old. And notice I picked only Republican presidents. Okay? So there's nothing un-American about doing that. The question is, where are you going to get the money? It's got to be a mix of private and public money. But I have an idea. When companies earn money overseas and make profits, they don't pay any tax at all, zero tax on that money, unless they try to bring it back to this country. Then they have to pay 35%. But they never do that because they're very clever. They organize and they lobby Washington. They did that in 2005. And they said to President Bush and his administration and to Congress, I'll tell you what, we have a trillion dollars of profits overseas. We'll bring them back and create jobs in America if you'll give us a tax break. Well, did they get a tax break? The government agreed. They brought it home. The tax rate they paid was 5.5% as opposed to 35%. Now, today, American companies, according to J.P. Morgan Chase, have $1.7 trillion of accumulated profits overseas, and they want to bring it back, and they want another tax holiday. And they say, we'll help you generate jobs in America. Sounds great. But a few people said, economists in Washington said, why don't we go back and see, before we make the new deal, why don't we go back and see what happened to the trillion dollars that came back in 2005? When they went back and took a look, they found that 92% had gone to the CEO and other top executives and to the shareholders, and only 8% had gone to jobs. So people are saying, let's go slow on this. What I say is, let them bring back the 1.7 trillion, charge them 20%, or charge them 17 and a half, give them a half, half, half off tax rate, but make them put the $1.7 trillion into rebuilding the infrastructure. Invest it, not give it, not tax it, they can get a profit on it, but that's where we can get some of that capital. So I have, we have to get smart. We have to do things to rebuild American manufacturing. We have to help, there's still 10 million people caught in underwater houses and bad high interest rate loans. If we gave them lower interest rate loans, refinance their loans, they, that would generate hundreds of billions of dollars of consumer purchasing power in the American economy right away. We could raise the minimum wage so the people at the bottom can actually get out of poverty. People who are making, People are making $7.25 an hour working in fast food restaurants. My hunch is in Lincoln, but certainly around the country. They're working 30 hours a week. Do you know what that is? It's $210 a week. It's $11,000 a year. That's poverty wages. Those people need food stamps. Why do we want to give them food stamps? Why don't we pay them a bit more? Then they don't need the government program, and we get it more operating. I think there are a bunch of sensible things to do. But those things aren't going to happen in Washington unless we make them happen. 
The people who are, uh, the power structure today, the powers that be, like the system the way it is. If you like it, stick with it. If you don't like it, and my experience is an awful lot of people are unhappy with it, then we got to change it. We've got to change the gerrymandering system. We've got to open up the public primaries. We've got to reduce the influence of money by increasing the power and the influence of small donors, maybe with voter vouchers, maybe with tax credits, maybe with some matching public funds. We've got to do something to balance the influence of heavy money. But none of this is going to happen, ladies and gentlemen, unless you get involved. Unless we go back to the era of middle-class people power of the 60s and 70s, which is one of the reasons I took so long talking about it before. We're here now. We're at the precipice. John Gardner told, told us we were here. 63% of the public has already decided the U.S. is in decline. I don't want it to decline. I don't think you want it to decline. But it's going to do that. It's going to keep going the way it's been going unless we decide, we in this room tonight, and in rooms like this, again and again across this country, decide we have got to change something and start to work on it now. We have to do what, the, what Rosa Parks did in Montgomery, Alabama in 1955 when they said, go to the back of the bus, lady, that's what Jim Crow requires. We have to say, I'm not going to the back of the bus. I'm not buying this inequality of income anymore. I'm not buying this kind of political system anymore. I'm going to start working with my friends and neighbors to improve things in our area and reach out. And this is not to say that Nebraska is not a great state, but you know every state's got some imperfections, and you've got influence with people in Washington. And if you've got the right people in Washington, then use your influence with them to have a better effect on what's going on in Washington. We've got to get the middle back. We've got to get our country back. The last six words of my book, and this is a reporter's book, and I never thought I would write this at the end of my book, are we the people must take action. Thank you. Nice to see you. I couldn't even see you. The lights were so bright. Didn't know if there was anybody out there. <laughs> uh, if you have questions for Hedrick Smith, please uh, get a card from one of the ushers. Uh, write your question quickly. Uh, give it back to the ushers, and, and those will be brought over here so that we can ask the questions. Uh, let me begin with one question uh, that came uh, from one of the students in the Thompson Scholars. How can we rearrange and manipulate our budget to keep a global presence and avoid imperial overstretch? Well, um, that's a part of my book I didn't get into. Um, as my friend, the historian next, uh, next to me reminded me, a Yale historian by the name of Paul Kennedy wrote a book called The Rise and Fall of Great Powers. And he made the point which um, was pretty persuasive to me. I, I like historians. You notice I quote to uh, Toynbee, and then, and then Paul Kennedy. He said it is characteristic of great empires and great powers at some point in their history, usually late in their history, to go extend their reach around the world, put bases or colonies or military power 
stretch out in the world to a degree that their domestic economy can no longer support it. Power gets built up as the economy is on a steep climb. And then the economy starts to slow down. It doesn't go as fast. But the projection of the military power keeps right on going. And that's the point that was being made by Kennedy. And he wrote this book in 1987. And he said that was already happening to us as it had happened to 16th century Spain and 19th century Britain and even the Roman Empire, looking back a lot further than that. So I think part of what we have to do is to be smart about whether or not our investments in the use of military force overseas make sense economically. Eisenhower, let me quote you. This is, this is my favorite expert on this subject. Eisenhower, five-star general, commander of our forces in World War II, said, if I can find the quote quickly, to amass military power without regard to our economic capacity would be to defend ourselves against one kind of disaster by inviting another. In other words, spending too much on the military when our economy doesn't have enough oomph and strength and muscle at home and our manufacturing capacity is declining is to invite an economic disaster by trying to put too much military weight on it. You need to know that our military budget today is about $100 billion a year higher than it was at the peak of the Cold War. Now, terrorism is a serious threat, and we need to do something about it. We can't lay down our arms, but it is not as serious a military threat as a nuclear-armed Soviet Union with hundreds of bombers and hundreds of missiles on submarines and hundreds of missiles on the ground. We've got to bring something back into proportion here. We need to do it. I'm actually grateful that Chuck Hagel is the Secretary of Defense, because he's the kind of guy who can balance those things. A question from somebody in the audience. Uh, talk about the impact of Citizens United and talk radio on elections. Can we make changes with the current system? Um, well, you need to know, I I've just come from Colorado. In the 2012 election, Colorado held a referendum on rolling back Citizens United and calling for a constitutional amendment to empower Congress to be able to regulate spending during political contributions and spending during political elections. Now, that's Colorado. That's not New York, it's not Massachusetts, it's not one of those crazy liberal states. Colorado is a purple state, it's not blue, it's not red, it's purple. 70% of the people who voted, voted in favor of that referendum. There are now 16 states in the country that have passed resolutions either in the legislature or through referendum and initiatives that have gone on record now calling for a constitutional amendment or legal action to overturn Citizens United and give Congress the power. So um, it's up to you whether or not you think that's the way to go in Nebraska. But there's certainly a national movement that is underway, and it may be that, that American politics are, and I hope it's true, that the politics and the political initiative is going to come from the states now, that Washington is so stuck in the mud that enough of us are fed up with that that we're going to start to say, we've got to do it here. And we've had those eras in the past. I mean, the great progressive era of the 1920s was an era when national policies were actually being formulated in the states. This may be another era. Uh, so I think that's an issue that's right in front of you today. <laughs> 
Why did Occupy Wall Street fail in its objective? Uh, why is it harder to protest? Um, I'm glad to get that question. I deal with Occupy Wall Street in my book as well as the Tea Party. Um, I think you can tell I'm not sympathetic to the Tea Party, but as a political analyst, I need to say that the Tea Party has been an effective grassroots movement. It has had very clear objectives. It's had a very clear philosophy. Uh, it has organized itself well. It has found financial backers. And the Tea Party now has uh, about 60 members of the House of Representatives. Occupy Wall Street, in my opinion, was not a similar movement. It was a cry of protest. It was a cry of anguish. It was a cry of, uh, of dissatisfaction and condemnation of the Wall Street banks. It's interesting, when we talk about it today, it's interesting, even the question said, Occupy Wall Street. Most people, when they talk about it, say, Occupy. That's not the slogan, if I were organizing that movement, that I would want people to remember. I'd like them to remember the banks, or Wall Street, or money, or something uh, focused on that. It was a protest which put in our political lexicon and our public mind the idea of the 99% and the 1%. When I'm talking about the 1% tonight, part of what I'm saying you can accept more readily because Occupy was there and got that idea popular. But what it didn't do is what the civil rights movement or the environmental movement or the consumer movement or, or for that matter, the Tea Party movement have done. It didn't have clearly articulated goals. It didn't say limit the size of the banks, put a ceiling on the, they could have said any of these things. I'm not advocating, I'm just saying for goals, limit the size of the banks or break them up. Put a limit on a ceiling on the salaries of the CEO. Put a tax on stock transactions and Wall Street to stop people from flushing through uh, selling stock all the time and also raising money for social programs. They could have had a bunch of those goals. They never articulated them. And the second thing they did that, that caused, I think, the movement to peter out was they didn't have leadership. I, I, they, if you want to go talk, let's say you were on Wall Street and you were one of the bankers and you thought, all right, these people have got a protest. I want to go talk to them. And by the way, there are people in corporate America high up and even in some of the banks who are worried about some of the issues I've been talking about tonight. There's some very smart people that are concerned about these things. If they had been ready to go talk to anybody at Occupy Wall Street, there was no way they could go talk to. It was organized like a, a, like a Vermont town meeting. Now, that's a wonderful thing in terms of was, everybody was equal. You go talk to whoever you want and they can tell you what they want, but you can't negotiate with a movement that way. So if you're going to have a movement, you've got to have clear goals, you've got to have clear leadership, and then the question is, where were the people, where were the people on the left or the center who could have provided the funding for Occupy to become a real political movement to counterbalance uh, patriots, uh, the super patriots, the, 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 uh, the Koch brothers, uh, the, the number of foundations and, and, uh, and funders on the right that funded the Tea Party. There were experienced political organizers that grabbed onto the Tea Party movement and actually took part of it over. That didn't happen on the center and the left. So it's partly the kids who were involved in it and it's partly the response of other people who were in sympathy with it. It did very well in the polls, but it didn't become a movement. It's possible for a movement to emerge and it may well be that this issue of Citizens United will be the issue that does it. I, but I think a movement will emerge. Please address the decline of unions and how much uh, effect this has had on economic equality. Can unions ever regain the economic impact on wages they once had? Well, the decline of unions is really easy to, uh, to give the statistics on. Union membership in the private sector 
back in the heyday of the middle class uh, was about 35%, and today it's about 8 or 9%. So, that, I mean, there's been a tremendous loss. Now, part of what's happened is companies have moved, textile plants, uh, uh, automobile plants, shoe plants, and so forth, have moved from unionized or union-friendly states like Massachusetts and Michigan and Illinois and Ohio and so forth into uh, right-to-work states, uh, which means right not to join union states, like Alabama, Mississippi, and South Carolina. And then the jobs have also moved to, to Mexico and to China. So part of it is a shrinking of the industries where the union was strong, and part of it is a, a very strong and effective anti-union campaign of major employers uh, like Walmart uh, against unions. It's had, I, I think there's no question. This is a tough subject to talk to Americans about. Americans are embarrassed about unions. Most of us don't even stop to think of the fact that if it weren't for unions, we wouldn't have weekends. Do you understand? If it weren't for unions, we wouldn't have weekends. Mm. I mean, the unions came up with a five-day week, and they came up with a 40-hour week, you know, so we'd be working later, and then they came up with overtime and so forth. So unions have had a profound effect but they have the modern economy, the, the knowledge economy, the internet economy, the digital economy, uh, it, people who work uh, in those fields, professionals, college-educated people, don't turn to unions. I mean, uh, it, doesn't, it, it feels sort of artificial. I should be able to stand up for myself. Um, I'm always interested when I fly, and, and occasionally I see a United Airlines pilot who makes a couple hundred thousand dollars a year, and I remember he's a, he's a member of the Airline Pilots Association, which is a trade union. So there are some people in our economy that make a, a pretty darn good salary who got that in part through unions. But I don't think there's any question that the decline of unions has a good deal to do with the decline of the bargaining power of average people in a multinational dominated economy. Can they come back? I'm not sure whether or not we're going to see a union movement in the same form that we've seen it in the past. It may well be there's going to be a progressive movement where people are concerned about child care and the environment and health and wages and the minimum wage. A general cluster of issues may decide they want to get together to fight for those issues. I, I don't know if they can come back. It's very difficult. Would you draw any comparisons between today's economy and government uh, and that of the Gilded Age of the uh, 1800s. Yeah, I mean, the questioners got it. Uh, this is the third great wave of American enormous wealth. I mean, the, the, the Gilded Age, and by the way, it's very interesting to go back and look at those periods. The Gilded Age in the late 19th century, 1880s, 1890s, saw enormous concentration of wealth. We remember that. We even remember the slogans like the robber barons. What we don't remember is that there was a period called the Long Depression in that era, okay? So while we had enormous inequality of wealth, we had a Long Depression. Move forward to the next period where we had high inequality of wealth, the 1920s, and we wound up with Black Friday and the Depression. Take a look at America today, we have high inequality of wealth, and we have the, the Great Recession, and who knows whether or not we're going to have another financial collapse. I do not believe that the Dodd-Frank bill, the financial regulatory bill, has dealt effectively with the problem of banks that are too big to fail. And I'm not sure we're out of the woods on that one yet. So what you see is these high concentrations of wealth being accompanied by long periods of unemployment, depression, recession, financial collapse. Not a very good combination. I mean, the historical record's out there. We, have to, we actually have to take a few moments to actually go back and look at it and then say, okay, now what do we do? 
before I pick up my pitchfork and torch, can you explain why your conclusions are such a hard sell to most people? I guess I'm not very good at it. <laughs> I'm trying real hard. Um, I really appreciate the question. I don't know whether or not this is a moment we ought to stop. Um, no, well, we're we're, we're going to have one more question okay, after Okay, well, this ask one. that one. I want to come back to I want to end with this question because I want to come back to that. Can you do that? Okay. Well, bef before I uh, ask the next question, let me uh, remind you that uh, on February 25th, uh, we'll have the next uh, Thompson Forum, uh, which will be the uh, Chuck and Linda uh, Wilson dialogue. Uh, the topic uh, for that dialogue is uh, the American military, war and peace, spending and politics. Uh, it will feature uh, Professor Andrew Basevich of Boston University and uh, Derek Chalet, uh, who is in the uh, Department of Defense. Now, uh, are you going to say one other thing on my oh, behalf? Yes. Uh, after we adjourn, uh, down uh, in the lobby, uh, you will have the opportunity to purchase uh, Hedrick Smith's book, and he will be there to sign his book for you. What a generous thought. <laughs> now, uh, let, let me turn a comment uh, into a question, and then you can come back to the uh, other question. Okay. Uh, the comment is, please run for president in 2016. You think I'm nuts? <laughs> I got more sense than that. <laughs> so you want to read that again? The pitchfork question. Uh, why is it such a hard sell uh, to most okay. people? And let me take the question head on seriously and then say a couple of things I want to say at the end here. I think that, that the hard sell um, reflects the fact that people have a very hard time putting the picture together. I've tried very hard tonight, and I've tried very hard in this book, and I've tried very hard for myself as well as for you, literally to try to understand what the heck has happened over the last 30 or 40 years in our country. I think that as journalists, my colleagues and I have failed you. I don't think we've done that. I think we've gotten into a short-term journalism that's fascinated with the titillation of the day. We're, we're interested in entertaining you except that we're willing to bore you endlessly by repeating every single day, every single news cycle, every single hour, what Boehner says and what the White House spokesman says, even though neither one of them is saying anything but what they said in the previous hour. <laughs> but I don't think there's enough work being done uh, by journalists and maybe even in some academic quarters to try to explain to people our story and put things in context. And I think the reason why it's hard, and that's, that's, our, you know, that's partly our fault. It's also partly your fault, because you're buying media that you shouldn't be buying. There are, there are places in the media that are trying hard to do this. They're not doing it as well as they should, but they're trying hard. But the ratings and the audiences are still going, and the blogosphere is full of all kinds of just utter nonsense. Um, and it goes on and on. So I think part of it's an interchange, the dialogue publicly that we're having is not very good. I think people have a very hard time understanding what's in their self-interest. I think the idea that if you lower taxes, you're gonna have more growth is a very seductive idea, and it's one of a bunch of seductive ideas. It doesn't happen to be right, but it takes a lot of thought 
It takes a lot of care. It takes a really desperate effort to be as honest as you can about it, which doesn't mean you're going to be perfect in your answer, to get at that. So I think this story is hard to tell. But I, what, what encourages me, and I've been going around since this book came out for the last year, doing much more of this than I'd expected to do, and what encourages me is two things. The audiences like you come out, and you're here, and you're staying here during the question period because you care desperately and you want to know. And you've got a hunch, I might just have a few things to tell you that would be useful. And I think the fact that you care and you want to be here and you want to participate in this is very important. And I just left Colorado, and the audience there was five or 600, and I, I talked to several hundred students at other times. And, and I'm going on to Seattle and, and Washington State uh, next week. And I was up in New Hampshire two weeks ago. I'm not running for office. Um, I'm, <laughs> Uh, I, I, I need to just say what I think you probably sense is I care intensely and I think we're in terrible trouble and I think we have to do something about it. We cannot any longer go on saying they've got to fix it. They're doing it wrong. As long as our political discourse today is about the third person and not about the first person, nothing's going to change. We actually have to do what I said earlier. We have to figure out what we can do in our area, in our arena. And we have to get mobilized. We have to do what the civil rights movement did and the women's movement and the environmental movement, those movements. They're an example. There's a friend of mine named Ernie Cortez. He's an organizer, uh, Latino organizer in Texas and New Mexico and Arizona and Southern California. And Ernie said this to me and it really just knocked my socks off. He said, you know that old, Ernie's a scholar. Uh, he's a very bright guy. He said, you know that old saying of Lord Acton, power corrupts, absolute power corrupts, absolutely. He said, powerlessness also corrupts. It corrupts democracy at the core. If we believe we don't have power, if we believe we're powerless, and the lobbyists have got hold of Washington, and the grip can't be broken, and the money's got hold of our politics, and the grip can't be broken, and the multinationals are not sharing the wealth, and that can't be changed, it won't change. We have simply got to organize ourselves and meet organized money and organized power with organized people power. We have to do it. We have to believe we can do it. And then we'll do it. Thank you.